All right, good morning. This morning we'll be looking again in Exodus chapter 32. If you uh, want to turn there in your Bibles or follow along as I read. Uh, continuing the account of Israel's uh, fall into sin and worshiping the golden calf. Uh, so we'll begin today looking at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses burned, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to, de to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Hmm. 
So we've titled this message, or this series, uh, Falling into Grace. Um, and uh, the grace is necessary because they've fallen into sin. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting that as Moses is, is, is on the mountain, even at the very moment that God is meeting with Moses and spelling out the terms of covenant relationship, the people down below are actually breaking that very covenant and turning their backs on Yahweh. Uh, and we saw last week that as they turned away from God, God's just and right response was to burn with anger with the desire to, to destroy Israel. But um, Moses interceded on behalf of them and he turned away God's wrath. Um, but that actually doesn't fix everything. And, and we left the passage last week. God did not wipe them out. But it's clear that God has not yet forgiven them. And we see that at the end, as we just read, that at the end of this passage today, uh, Moses still returns back to God to seek forgiveness and atonement. So everything is not fixed yet. And as I shared, this, this, this account is really a great picture of grace, but it's grace in slow motion. right? You ever watch sports events and you know, they love to take some great play and they... They like to slow it down so you can get every moment and see exactly what happened. Well, that's kind of what happens here in this passage. Grace unfolds over three long chapters. And we see really the depth and richness of grace. Um, uh, God's grace is his free gift, and it's something that God alone can give and do. Uh, it is his mercy to forgive sin. Um, uh, but... It's important to see, and what we want to look at in this passage is, is to see that God's grace does not mean that sin is somehow not a big deal or important or something we have to deal with in our life. Uh, it's very po possible and oftentimes common in the church where we speak so much of grace and rightfully so that we get this idea that because we live in the comfort of grace that just fixes everything and we don't really have to worry much about sin. It's like it's all taken care of and we just praise Jesus for his grace and we don't deal with or address sin in our life. And this passage is a great reminder that sin is serious. Uh, God takes it very seriously. And while there is grace, uh, grace is not as automatic as we might think. In fact, I believe kind of the point of this passage and what I want to highlight today is that we will uh, never experience the fullness of grace until we are truly serious about dealing with sin. Right? We'll never in our own life experience the fullness of grace if we're not serious about confronting and dealing with sin in our life. Um, that might sound a little confusing because we, we're told that grace is apart from works. And amen, that's absolutely true, right? Grace is apart from works. In other words... There's nothing that we can do to fix or atone or erase our own sin. The things that we've done, we don't have in our power the ability to wipe those things out, to atone for them. Right? But that doesn't mean that, 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 that there's not something for us to do. Right? Grace actually requires that we, uh, that we deal with sin. And, and the Bible is very clear that the path to grace is one of repentance which means to actively confess sin and turn away from it. Right? And this is not just an Old Testament. You're in the Old Testament and you can say, well, yeah, you know, Exodus, that's the Old Testament thing. Jesus changed all that, right? 
Well, yes, he did. But notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. Um, this, is after the res- this is after the cross, after the resurrection, and he appears to his disciples in bodily form uh, on, on one, of, one of his resurrection appearances. And notice what he says to his disciples. I love these words. It says, He opened their minds, that is the disciples' minds, to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the Gospel, right? And finally, through the Scripture and through the Spirit, they're starting to understand that it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. But then notice what he says next in verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Here Jesus definitely ties together the whole concept of forgiveness and repentance, grace and confession. Those things go together. Uh, If you want to, uh, and in fact it's, it's the gospel, Right? If you preach a gospel that does not require people to turn away from sin and uh, confess and reject those things out of their life, they cannot come to a place of true forgiveness and grace. And, and, uh, and that's what Jesus says. That's really what we see in this passage. So uh, let's kind of break it down and uh, see how this is pictured in, the, in this account. First of all, it starts with... Uh, really the devastating consequences of sin. And the, the main consequence is that it breaks the covenant or it breaks our relationship with God. Um, it says in verse 15, Moses went down the mountain uh, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets written on both sides, front and back, they were written. Right? Uh, these were the Ten Commandments uh, written front and back. The two tablets were exact copies. Okay, it wasn't like the first fiber on one and the second fiber on the other. They were exact copies. And they were, just, they, were, they were agreements. They were contracts of a covenant. So just like when you sign a covenant, a contract to rent a house or buy a car, you usually have multiple copies, right? One for the seller and one for the buyer. Well, it's exactly what these copies, these tablets represent. They're God's covenant agreement with them. And what's, what's crazy with this is that they've already broken the covenant. They've already messed this all up. But God sends Moses down the mountain with those tablets in hand. Um, and in spite of their, their sin and rebellion, uh, on paper the agreement still stands because they've got the written covenant or contract. And it's a treasure of actually immeasurable worth. It says that it was written by God himself. Tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Um, uh, If if you're into collecting stuff, if you want to get something really, really valuable, if you can ever stumble across some ancient original manuscript, like, you know, pick pick an author, your favorite author. If you can get your hands on one of his original manuscripts of one of his best-selling books, it's worth millions. 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 I'm looking at this. There's people selling original manuscripts of hand-copied Bibles, just one page, thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars. Not even the whole Bible, just one page. Um, Nothing like an original manuscript. Can you imagine the collector's value of this manuscript? Right? God himself wrote this with his own finger. 
It is priceless, an incredible treasure. Um, and it's a great picture that covenant is something that God initiates. Okay, he wrote the covenant. He made the agreement. We don't enter into covenant with relationship by our will or our initiative. It's something that God instigated with Israel and with us. And, uh, and so he's carrying down these stones. But it says he gets down closer and they hear this noise and they're, Joshua's a little confused. He thinks they must have gone to war. And Moses says, no, this is not the sound of defeat or victory. It's the noise of sin. Right? It's the noise of people who have gone out of control uh, and are living in the grip of sin. And so they, grow, they come down off the mountain, they come into the camp, and it says that Moses sees the idol and uh, he burns with anger. It's now his turn, turn to respond with uh, a hot anger at the sin of the people. And just as we talked last week that it was right for God to respond to sin with his wrath, Likewise, it was right for Moses to respond this way. Uh, it, it was a sign that Moses was serious about upholding and defending God's glory. Uh, now, of course, if, if Moses had other motives, his, his anger would have been wrong. If he was worried about himself, his own reputation, uh, his anger would have been misdirected. But I believe that Moses is here serious about and zealous about God's glory. And he sees the people uh, out of control and behaving in a way that dishonors God. And so he's angry about that. And he sees the idol. Um, and it says that as in response to all this, he does what? He takes these priceless God-inscribed original manuscripts that someday would be worth, like, fortunes. Little did he know. And he does what? Throws them down and breaks them. Um, now... There's a lot of debate. Should he? Was this the right thing to do? Did, did Moses mess up or not mess up? Uh, I don't really know. But it, it, is, it is important that this is a, a, an incredible image of the reality that's happened because of sin. The truth is Israel had broken the covenant. And so, so for, for Moses to, to slam down the tablets in his anger and to crack them into pieces... It was very symbolic of exactly what had already happened because the relationship with God had already been broken through their sin and rebellion and disobedience. Um, that's the effects of sin. In fact, we see in this there's really two great effects of sin. Uh, we bring dishonor to God when we sin. Uh, we, we attack His glory and His holiness Secondly, we damage seriously our, our relationship with him. Uh, and, and this is true for us as believers uh, who are saved by grace, who are children of God. When we sin, uh, yes, grace covers our sin. When we sin, praise God, we will not lose our salvation. God's work in our life, his, his dealing with our sin is to such an extent that um, doesn't matter what you do, I believe Scripture is clear. You cannot lose your salvation if you're truly saved. But that doesn't mean that sin does not damage our relationship with God. The um, Bible says it grieves the Holy Spirit. Uh, we cannot abide in God's presence, in Christ's presence, if we are living in sin. 
True, we cannot lose our salvation, but we will lose relationship when we sin. Grace doesn't prevent that. Uh, so it's vital that when we, when we fail, when we sin, that we restore what is broken. And the only way, of course, to do that is through grace. But as I said, the path to grace involves confronting and dealing with sin. It involves repentance and confession. And so uh, in the rest of this account, we see four things of what Moses does to move towards grace. Right? Uh, and he, the four things that he does are, are primarily focused on dealing with the idolatry and sin that's running through the camp. Uh, so first thing that he does, <laughs> easy, we know the story, he destroys the idol. Right? And I love the picture. It says he took the calf that they had made, and first he burns it with fire, then he grinds it to powder. I think he's still pretty fired up himself, actually. Grinds it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Right? Make some little gold calf Kool-Aid. Here, you want a calf? Drink this. Right? I think, Israel, I think Moses is like he's on fire with rage. And he puts the energy to good use. And he destroys the idol completely. He doesn't just chop it up in pieces. Uh, He grinds it to powder to completely, in every way, destroy it and to get rid of it in a way that it could never be made again. It doesn't go off and bury it in the desert where somebody could dig up the dust. And if you're smart, you would know how to get the gold out and re-extract it and make it into another idol or at least a nice necklace or something, right? He makes sure that they're not going to ever use this gold again. Because right? it's, it's going to places nobody wants to go, right? Once they drink it. Um, now, uh, it's true that destroying the idol does not automatically turn their hearts back to God. Okay, they still have a long ways to go, and we'll see as the story unfolds. They still have a long ways to go before, they, before the people are really repentant. But Moses starts here because... Their hearts will never change as long as the idol stays in the camp to tempt them. Um, what are our idols? Of course, obviously, most of us, I'm guessing, are not generally tempted to go make a golden calf and worship it. Right? We live in a different world where we're tempted by very different things, and our idols are, look very different. But that's not because we don't have idols. What is an idol? Well, simply put, an idol is anything that seeks to replace God by promising to give us what God alone can provide. Okay? And an idol is anything that seeks to replace God by promising to give us what God alone can provide. What does God promise to give us? Well, he's promised to give us things like love, joy, happiness, belonging, success, protection, his abundant provision, and even things like pleasure and worth and beauty, and yes, even glory, are things that God has promised to us. And it's things that he promised to Israel. And we we looked at this last week, that one of the issues of idolatry is that they exchange the glory of God for created things. God wants to pour out his glory. He wants to reveal to us his glory. And we'll see this in a couple chapters He wants to bless us with so many good things. 
And in, in fact, I really believe that God created us to enjoy these things. And it's how we experience His glory in our life. Uh, do we need to be loved? I need to be loved. Right? Do I need to have some sense that my life has meaning and worth? Absolutely. And God created us for these things and He wants us to have these things. But what happens is, there's two ways to get those things, right? To trust in God and wait on Him to provide and, and meet our needs. Or to take a shortcut, right? And, and the shortcut is always involves leaving God out of the picture and doing these things um, our own way. Uh, turning to the things that the world says will provide these things. Um, so when our flesh seeks to satisfy these desires without waiting on God or trusting in Him, uh, those things become idols. And we exchange the glory of God for cheap substitutes. Right, so all of us have idols. Uh, we all have things that we pursue to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life apart from God. Um, and the first step to grace is to remove these things from our life. Right? To eradicate, to, like Moses, burn them, grind them to dust, scatter them in the water, and drink them. You know, what does that look like in our world? We're probably a little different than it did in Moses' day. But the point is that we so remove these things from our life that the opportunity to sin is gone. Right? So that we no longer have access to these things. Uh, and this is not a heart issue, right? Like I said, Moses still has some work to do to get them to a place of confession and repentance. But we need to be, if we're serious about grace, we need to arrange our life in such a way that we put boundaries and fences around us to prevent the most obvious temptations from getting too close to us. Um, now you may say, well... Okay, you know, I can, I can remove the idol from my life, the temptation, but I still desire those things. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, we do. That's right. Getting rid of the temptation does not make us less tempted. Uh, and it takes a great work of God in our hearts to remove our desire for sinful things. Uh, but it is the ultimate goal of our life and of, of our faith to have such belief and faith in God that He will meet every need. Okay, do you believe that? Do you really believe that God wants to meet every need in your life to such an extent that you feel fulfilled and truly satisfied in Christ alone? Okay, that's the goal. Uh, and, and to get there, we have to trust in His love and goodness. Uh, and that's exactly where Israel went off, Right? Moses took too long on the mountain and they thought, you know, we've waited for 40 days. Time's up. We're not waiting anymore. Right? We don't believe that God's going to come through. We think God and Yahweh went on vacation and He's not coming back. So we've got to find our own way. We have to find our own God. We have to find something to replace this Yahweh. Right? And that's what we do. We lose patience with God. Say, God, I've waited, I've waited for three whole hours. <laughs> Nothing's happened. Right? I know a better way, an instant way to get what I want. 
And so we make that thing our idol. Um, so dealing with the heart issue is one thing, but here's the reality. Until we destroy the opportunities for sin, our heart will never have a chance to be changed. Right? Until, we, until we so wall our life in so that those things that so tempt us are not easily available and accessible, we never give God a chance to deal with our heart. So it means making, taking drastic measures to cut off these opportunities, building high walls that remove temptation from us. So it means, in, in the world we live in, it means uh, making sure our, our computers have all the kind of blocks to block the junk, right? Um, does it always work? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't always work. But do what you can, right, to make access to junk impossible for you. Set limits around the kind of movies and TV shows we watch and the music we listen to. Right? Put walls up about places we go and we visit. Right? For me, I, I will never go get a Thai massage. I don't care if it's a pinky toe massage. Right? By myself. Uh, I only go with, with my wife. Ever. Right? That's, that's just a limit for me. If you ever see me by myself getting a massage, you have permission to like... Beat me up, right? Just do it, right? Uh, it's a boundary. If your temptation is materialism, if you find that your heart is drawn too much to the stuff you own and it means too much to you, well, this is really easy. You can do like Moses did. Burn it, grind it to dust, put it in your water and drink it. Right? Just get rid of it. Just get rid of it, right? You can kill, clean the junk out of your life that you are holding on to that you care about too deeply. I remember talking to a, a, a college girl one time, an intern, about uh, materialism, and, and I said, well, it's easy. You can just give that all away. And she just laughed. <laughs> like, that's stupid. <laughs> no, actually, it's not stupid. Right? It's, it's dealing with sin. Right? It's making those things impossible to have access to. Now, is it possible in the world we live in? Well, well maybe in some ways it's not possible. I would give that, that a lot of sin is way too easily accessible in the world we live in. Um, and it is very challenging sometimes to put uh, barriers up that make it impossible for us to give in to the many things the world has around us. Uh, but where it, where it is challenging in our private lives, it is possible in the public sphere of our communities we live in. So in our homes, right, it's a community we live in where we can put up clear boundaries around our family. In our churches and in our ministries, we can structure things to make sure that these idols do not creep in. Um, right, so first that Moses may not be able to root the idols out of their heart, but he could certainly deal with the opportunity to access them. And he does that by grounding it to powder. Okay, but that's when you say, well, that's not enough. You're right, that's not enough. Step two, he doesn't end there. Step two, uh, he, we need to be held accountable. Next thing Moses does, Moses said to Aaron, okay, just burns up the idol, Aaron's great handiwork. He goes to Aaron and he says, what did those people do to you that you have brought such a great sin on them? Aaron, hello. What? You know, what is up? Right? 
Aaron said, let, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know these people, they are set on evil, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and poof, out came this calf. Total lie, right? Total lie. Um, Aaron had been left in charge while Moses was on the mountain. Uh, the people, as they said, grew patient. They said, Moses and Yahweh have left us. They are looking for an idol, right? They're looking for somebody to take care of them and protect them. And so Aaron's leader, they go at him and they, they, they demand, Aaron, you make us a new god. Uh, and Aaron um, appears to not have been completely on board with this, but he clearly did not take a stand against it. Right? As a leader, what he should have said is, hey, you've got to trust God. You've got to wait. God is going to take care of you. But instead, he joins in their plan and through some form of syncretism, he creates an idol to Yahweh, all right, which breaks the second command. Well, what's significant here is that Moses confronts Aaron and makes him give an answer for what he's done. That's accountability. Okay, accountability is having to give an answer for your actions and behavior and choices. Right? We all know the pain of doing something really stupid, right? We all know the agony of sinning. And that is one agony. But there's a whole other agony, and that is the agony of having to tell somebody else that you sinned, right? To be accountable, to give an answer. Uh, how could you be so stupid? Right? I don't know. I just am. Right? I am stupid, and I did something really wrong. Right? That's holding people accountable. Um, we need to have people like that in our life. We need to find people who will hold us accountable by promising to ask us the questions. Right? What have you been looking at on your computer? Have you been watching movies that were not Christ-honoring? Right? Have you been, uh, whatever it is you struggle with, right? whatever it is you struggle with, finding a person who will covenant with you to ask you those hard questions and demand an answer, uh, and specifically about your areas of weakness. Right? Moses does that for Aaron. Sadly, however, Aaron does not own up to his sin. And accountability doesn't work if we're not committed to being honest about our failures and mistakes. Instead of uh, being honest, Aaron follows his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother, Adam and Eve. Right? He does not take responsibility for his actions, but he blames the people. He plays the part of a victim. You know, they attacked me. It wasn't my fault. Right? He lies to cover up his own active participation in making the idol. He protects his own image. Right? He can't be honest and transparent about his mistakes because he's too concerned about what Moses will think about him, his reputation as a leader. Accountability is only helpful if we truly are deeply committed to being open and completely honest about our life. Um, and our goal in being transparent must be for God's glory, not our own. 
It's very interesting in, in the West, especially, I'm not sure in other countries, but in America, I'll speak for America, it's become really cool and trendy to be transparent, right? And I've heard guys who get up and they preach and they are like, like sickeningly transparent, like scary transparent. It's like, whoa, buddy, that's like way too much information uh, and not really the appropriate place to share. And the purpose is that uh, it's cool. And people applaud them. Wow, that's just so cool. He's so transparent, right? Um, but the problem is that in applauding people for their openness, we don't really expect them to turn away from sin. Because week after week after week, they're sharing the same failures. Okay, that's not being transparent. That's just being untransformed, right? The goal here is not... Uh, under the guise of grace to become just the sinner saved by grace week after week after week, right? And I can be transparent because sin doesn't matter and grace is everything, right? That's not what we mean here. Instead, we should be a sinner who's being radically transformed by the power of the gospel, right? The point of confessing, the point of accountability is to not keep sinning, right? Um, so if you're, if you're just transparent for the sake of transparent, you're just doing it for your own glory, not God's. But if you're deeply concerned about God's glory and you're grieved by the sin in your life, right, you'll be accountable to change. Because true accountability is giving an answer for our choices and being accountable to change and live differently. Right, we need people to hold us accountable to change. Uh, to find God's power to overcome sin. And it's not something we do in our own strength. It's something God has to do in our heart. Right? We need to find and be accountable to not just confess, but to change. Say, I want you to hold me accountable to live differently, to turn away from sin, and to pursue uh, a walk with Christ that seeks to, to glorify Him. Um, third thing that he does. Uh, so he deals with Aaron. A little moment of accountability doesn't go so well. Uh, next thing, and when Moses saw the people had broken loose, okay, they were out of control, really is what it means. They've lost self-control. For Aaron had let them break loose. And uh, to the derision of their enemies. In other words, uh, in a way that, that made God look terrible before his enemies. Again, Moses is concerned about God's glory here. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, this is not Moses' instructions, it's God's instructions. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord, the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 people fell. Um, next thing that Moses really does is he puts an end, he puts a stop to the ongoing sin. Uh, and he does it in a pretty militant fashion. Now, uh, you're going to be careful how we apply this. Okay, we're in, we are in the air of grace. Um, there's no place in the New Testament where where there would be uh, any indication that it's all right for us to have church police who put on their swords and go around killing people. 
There's a lot of reasons why that's not a good idea. Um, but, but, but the point is this. What Moses was doing here was putting an end to the practice of sin. But they were out of control. And sin has that effect. It makes us lose self-control. And there was chaos and disorder and rampant sin going on all over. And Moses, as a leader and shepherd of his people, puts a stop to it. And he begins by asking the people to choose. And amidst the noise and confusion, I don't know how this worked, but he, he cries out, Who is on the Lord's side? Now, we don't know, and it's, it's very clear that all the people sinned. Uh, they either sinned by actively participating and following in the, in the worship of this idol, or they sinned in not standing up against it. Right, so all the people at some level are guilty. But Moses gives them a choice to, to now, at this moment, to choose what you're going to do. Are you going to follow God or not? And it says the Levites come to his side. Um, and then God gives the command for them to put on their swords and go around and kill people. Uh, and it's presumed, the text is not specific, but presumably they are to target those who were... Um, you know, most actively practicing sin or who, who have been known to be the leaders of it, um, even if they're relatives. Right? They're, they're to be defending God's glory even if it means killing their own friends and, and family. Uh, and uh, it's important to notice that, that Moses says specifically that they were ordained for this. Ordained simply means to be chosen or appointed or set aside. Um, and the, the point is that good leaders take control and do not allow blatant sin to go unchecked. But they put a stop to it in the community, in the place where they have influence. So what does this look like in our world? Um, I think most of us uh, would be very uncomfortable with this in our context. Right? Uh, if you're sinning and somebody comes up to you and says, you're sinning, you stop that right now. How would you feel about that, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I might be sinning, but that's my problem, not yours. Just butt out, right? Mind your own business. Uh, by whose authority do people have the right to tell somebody else to stop sinning, right? Like Jesus and the whole log in the eye thing, right? Uh, don't, don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye until you get the log out of your own eye. And we interpret that to mean... Nobody has any right or business to confront somebody else about sin in their life. But is that really what the Bible teaches? Well, it is true that not everybody has authority to tell everybody what to do, although Jesus commands us, if our brother sins, we are to go to our brother and we are to confront them one-on-one uh, -on -one if there's sin. Uh, but it's also true that God has given authority. He has ordained uh, shepherds, leaders, to have that right, whose who responsibility is to keep sin in check and to stop it. And in a family, it falls to the, the father, the husband, the head of the home, who is to intervene and, and stop sin, active sin, blatant sin, uh, in his home. Right? Now, can you stop sin of the heart? No. Right? But blatant, outward, active sin, you stop it. Uh, God has put elders over his church with the same role. So, so, you know, we practice this. Um, but it makes people nervous and very uncomfortable. Uh, why is that? 
Well, partly because, it is partly because we don't like people telling us what to do. But it's also true that these authorities often abuse their power. Right? We all know of people who have not exercised this authority in a godly way. Um, so, so, so here's the thing. And, and whether you're the sheep who's being told, you know, confronted about your sin, or you're a shepherd who's confronting, here's, here's the main issue. The simple issue comes out of this. Is your religion man-centered or God-centered? Right? If, it's, if you believe that Christianity is really about you, God's grace is really focused about you, that God is really all about you, then you're not going to like people telling you what to do with your life. Right? You're going to be very uncomfortable with that. Uh, likewise, uh, a, a shepherd who is man-centered can go to one of two extremes. He could be like Aaron, seeking to gain the praise of the people, and unwilling to stand up and confront sin and put it to a stop. Because right? he's too concerned about how people will think about him as a leader. But it can go to the other extreme, and oftentimes shepherds beat their sheep to make them conform to their standards, uh, often in the name of righteousness. But when it's man-centered at the root of it, it's not God's glory. It's the leader's glory. How it, makes, how it affects his power and his image and his reputation. And often these people are controlling and abusive, claiming God-given authority, but using it for their own glory. Um, but God doesn't give authority to, to beat people up. And certainly he doesn't want weak and passive leaders who don't stand against him. But God does ordain leaders who will not allow sin to go unchecked. It's part of their role and responsibility. And it's not just Old Testament. Uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is a good example of, that God takes it seriously. Right, when we sin against him. Last thing, end with this, last couple of verses. Uh, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And here we see that, well, on the one hand, Moses uh, is a strong leader who deals decisively with sin. He is also a guy who is a shepherd who cares deeply for his people. Right, the next day after a horrible night, he gets up and he calls the people. He says, look, you, you have sinned against God. Right? You have exchanged the glory of God. You have broken the covenant. You have damaged relationship with him. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up on the mountain and I am going to plead with God and seek your forgiveness and to seek to make atonement for your sins, to bring you back home and into right relationship with God. And I love that, that Moses himself takes responsibility for this. He doesn't say, I'm not the one who sinned. You go figure it out. But as a leader, as a shepherd, he says, no, I am going to stand before God in you and I am going to plead that God forgives you. Okay? 
He's that kind of shepherd. And he goes on the mountain and he intercedes and he pleads and he begins by confessing to God their sin. And remember, this is not his sin. It's the sins of the people, but he confesses the sins of the people specifically. Right? He says, they, they've made idols, false gods, and worshiped them. Um, but then Moses goes on and he says something very interesting. In verse 32 he says, Now, God, if you will forgive, your, if you will forgive their sin. Right? He's pleading, if, if you will, Lord, please forgive them. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, what in the world does Moses mean by this? Uh, well, the short answer, because we're running out of time, is this. Moses has just spent 40 days on the mountain getting this picture of worship. Right? And at the center of this is this idea that God is holy. And sinful people can't just approach him without their sin being dealt with. There must be atonement. And in order for there to be atonement, there must be what? Blood sacrifice. Right? You cannot go into God's presence without the blood of a sacrifice, a substitute to, to atone for sin. Okay, so that's one piece of what's going on here. That's one part of the context. But secondly, you've got to understand what the book of life is. Okay, the book of life in Old Testament times was simply, it was not a biblical term actually, it was something that was a civil term. And it was a list of names that a, a town or a region would use to record the people in their district. Kind of a census list for purposes of taxes, military service, and land ownership. Um, but the way this worked, kind of like it does nowadays, uh, you can't tax dead people, right? Well, you can try, but you're not going to get much out of them. So the, the list to be active needs to be only living people. So what would happen when somebody was would die, they would be blotted out, erased from the list. So what is the Book of Life? Well, the Book of Life essentially is a list of the living people. Right? And to be blotted out means what? To die. Right? It means you died. Um, now, in the New Testament, this image was expanded uh, to be a picture of eternal life. Right? Uh, and what happens is we often read that meaning back into the Old Testament, but I do not think that's how Moses would have understood this. Right? The, the Israelites had not developed this this elaborate a scheme yet of, of eternal life. I think Moses is simply saying this. If, if you will not forgive them, then take my life. Right? Blot me out of the book of life. Take my life uh, so that I can be that, that, that sacrifice for sin. Let me be the one who atones through my life for their sin. Um, you know, Moses understood that it took the, the blood of normally a, a lamb or a bull, which, by the way, none of them had eternal life. <laughs> right? I don't think. All cows go to heaven? Maybe. Um, maybe not. Uh, 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 Moses is simply saying, look, let me be that sacrifice for atonement so that the people can be forgiven. What a noble thing for that shepherd. It's a sign of how much Moses loved and cared for them. But God's answer, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that's the one I will block out of my book. Every person will answer for their own sin. 
Now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. God says to Moses, every person must pay for their own sin. A couple reasons. I don't have time to go into all of it, but basically Moses was not a worthy substitute. Moses himself was a sinner. God could not take Moses' life um, to pay for sin. Um, and, And God is very clear here that that we are responsible before God for our sin. Um, Our friend can't take our place. Our parents can't take our place. We as parents can't take the place for our children and and how we would, right? We're We're not adequate or worthy. But of course, this is a great picture. Uh, While Moses was not adequate, it's a great picture of Jesus who was, right? Jesus is the one, the great shepherd who came to the Father and said, if you will forgive them, but if not, take my life. Let me die in their place. And of course, Jesus did make atonement for us through his own blood. Um, so put this all, summarize this review just uh, to finish, Luke, Luke 24, 46, Jesus said, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Right? The path to grace is through repentance, through dealing with the sin in our life. Grace does not mean that sin is no big deal. And and it's clear that if we want to appropriate God's grace, we need to get rid of the idols. We need to put boundaries around our life so that we don't have as easy access to the things that tempt us. Secondly, we need to be accountable, which means being honest. And it also means being um, honest about changing. And the cool thing is that grace gives us the power to own our own sin. Right? Because grace says, I am forgiven. So I can be honest about my sin. Because through confession, I find cleansing and forgive, forgiveness. Deal with sin. Put a stop to sin in your own life. Uh, and more importantly, submit to the shepherds God has put over you to help protect you. Lastly, we should be daily seeking forgiveness. Uh, through specific, honest confession, acknowledging that we cannot atone for our own sins, but accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. All right, let's, let's, uh, I'm not sure who's praying. Shine.